Welcome to The Lamp Post in the Woods, the podcast that shines a light on the significance of the greatest stories ever told. From fairy tales to literary classics to the parables of Jesus, these stories have influenced the lives of countless people and still do. Here at The Lamp Post in the Woods, we journey through the great books, dramas, poems, and stories to find what they have to say for our lives today. I'm your host, Dinah Koppel, and joining me in this fellowship are Benjamin Koppel, Jennifer Malik, and Evan Zenobia. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, nine for mortal men doomed to die, one for the dark lord on his dark throne, in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them. One ring to bring them all, and in the darkness, bind them. In the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 11. Now, on this podcast, there's four of us. We like a lot of the same stuff, but sometimes we have, you know, different interests, different types of books and stories that we like. And so, what we try to do is to talk about the books and the stories that each of us really want to talk about. And so... This season, we've all had our time. We had an entire episode dedicated to World War I. That was Jen. Totally, that was Jen's vibe. She was loving it. We had our Beauty and the Beast episode, which I was all about. It was totally my thing. We even had Evan's Creepy Historian episode, and that was totally his vibe, and it was awesome. We had Evan's Choice, and it was wonderful. But this one, we've waited for it, and this one is finally for you, Benjamin. So longtime listeners of our podcast may remember from season one, episode one, what Benjamin's favorite book is. And this could even be, one might say, the one episode to rule them all, because today we are taking a deep dive into The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Woohoo! And I'm super excited. Now, let me say before we get any further that this book is long. There's a whole lot to it. And there's just so much material and so much stuff that we could go over. So there's no way that we could get all of our feelings out in this one episode or get all of our thoughts out in this one episode. So I just want to put that out there right now. So if you are listening to this episode and you say, but they didn't talk about such and such, or how could you not talk about this? Never fear. Tolkien and Lord of the Rings will be coming back in future episodes. Um, So hopefully this will be the very first episode of many. So we're going to have an amazing time in this episode. And as always, we're going to talk about whatever we want to in this episode. So this is your official spoiler warning. And in order to start us off, I'm going to hand things over to Benjamin now to give us a little history and background of this book. I hope this episode is not just for me. I'm going to start this off by reading what I think probably has to be the best quote and the most important quote. Um, about Lord of the Rings, not from the book, but about Lord of the Rings. Um, in, in a lot of editions, there starts with a foreword, I believe it was the foreword to the second edition that Tolkien wrote. Um, and in it, he gives sort of an apology for his book. And this is where he, he, he starts here. He says, the most critical reader of all, myself, now finds many defects, minor and major, But being fortunately under no obligation either to review the book or write it again, he will pass over these in silence, except one that has been noted by others. This book is too short. Now, 
I don't think that there was one reviewer ever who told Tolkien, hey, your book is too short. Because again, when Tolkien talks about the book, he's referring to the whole entire thing, which is incidentally why we, we did this whole episode on the Lord of the Rings as one book. We read it as three separate volumes, as three separate books, but that's not how he wrote it. He wrote it and considered it to be one book. But the man thought the book was too short. And he's apologizing for the shortness of his book because uh, <laughs> he did he wasn't able to put... Uh, what he felt like everything that he needed to in this book, which I'm sure we'll get back to that at some point, which seems but that seems ironic to all of us because the book is long and full of so many different stories and, and references. And there's so many different callbacks to, to different things. You know, he, he references stories and he references uh, epic poems and he references these, these pieces of history that uh, aren't in the book and that are not real history. But we actually have to go back in Tolkien's history to get some of the the background for him writing this, these um, these books. When he was a young man fighting World War One, Tolkien spent a lot of his, some of his time during the war writing in a journal. And in that journal, he wasn't writing letters to his family or to his friends or to some love that he left behind. No, Tolkien was writing his own mythology. Hmm. He was a, a huge fan of mythology. He was a huge fan of ancient heroic stories. And he felt that as a, uh, an Englishman, he felt like uh, people from England didn't really have their own specific mythology. There's a lot of uh, mythology that, that goes, that's part of England, but a lot of that comes from, as actually French mythology, kind of like King Arthur. A lot of that came from, 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 from different kind of French sources. Um, there's some Irish myth in there. There's a lot of Christian myth, but none of that is specifically English. So Tolkien thought he would go and write this mythology. And so as a young man, he started writing that mythology, wrote it for years and years and years, um, found out that he was maybe the only person who loved mythology that much. And he wanted to write this this stuff, but nobody else really wanted to hear about it. It's, it's very so, modest of him, right? To be like, oh, my country doesn't have mythology, so I'll just go ahead and write it on behalf of my entire country. Like, I appreciate it. It's very bold. <laughs> well, I think one thing we can say about The Lord of the Rings, it is very English. It's it's very British. Yeah, for sure. You know, yeah. A lot of parts. <laughs> So he did, he did decent, like uh, another, another quote from the forward of the second edition. He says, some who have read the book or at any rate have reviewed it, have found it boring, absurd, or contemptible. And I have no cause to complain since I have s similar opinions of their works or the kind of writing they evidently prefer. <laughs> um, so Clapping back. <laughs> Tolkien would never, would never let, you know, uh, uh, an insult go unanswered, but he did understand that there were a lot of people who thought some of, you know, that mythology sort of stuff was boring. I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Um, people did think it was more. No one wanted to hear about that. Nobody wanted nobody wanted him to publish that. So he just kept working on it, working on it. Eventually, in his spare time, he he wrote down this little story. Uh, you may have heard it. It's called The Hobbit. Um, mm -hmm. And published that because his kids said, hey, you should publish this. Good. Uh, and then, of course, we know what happened with The Hobbit. It turned out to be this wonderful story that people, that young people and, and adults love to read. And it was so successful that his publishers came to him and said, we want a sequel to The Hobbit. And he said, okay, I've got this great idea about all this mythology stuff. And they're, no, 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 no. We don't want to hear that. <laughs> we want more Hobbits. And Tolkien said, are, are you sure? Maybe no, no, we want more Hobbits. So give us a Hobbit story. That's what we want. And, he, and so he went back and said, okay, I'll give you a Hobbit story. But I'm also going to give you all the mythology and all the epic stuff that I would have put in there. <laughs> so Tolkien started on this epic journey, much like the book he wrote. Um, that took something like 13 years, 13, 15 years, something like that for him to write. They told him 
that they wanted a sequel. I believe The Hobbit came out in 1937. The first part of Lord of the Rings doesn't come out till like 1951 or 52. My, wow. my dates are a little bit off. So he spent 13 to 15 years writing a sequel, a Hobbit sequel, but he also put in here all the epic mythology and all these heroic stories that he wanted. And I think that's what it, perhaps one of the best ways to describe Lord of the Rings. It's it's this kind of small town like fairy tale with these hobbits, these kind of these characters that love to eat and love to have fun and these whimsical little characters melded with this massive overall story that has epic century and, and millennium reaching consequences. And that's what we have with Lord of the Rings. It really is a mashup of of maybe fairy tale and mythology, if you want to look at mm. it like that. But but it's done to the point where it's this interwoven story. And essentially Tolkien started his own launched his own genre with this book. And I think we're going to talk more about that um, sometime at the end. But the book, I think, is is unmatched, at, at least in, 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 in its genre. There's, there's nothing else like The Lord of the Rings, partly because of that mashup that, that Tolkien got to when, when he was writing it. Another thing, I know I'm rambling a little bit, but I think all this stuff is interesting. will help us with our discussion later. One more thing I, I want to I add as well before we, before we jump into our analysis is, when Tolkien wrote this book, he wrote it very, very different from how most people write books. You know, most people write books, they'll plan a book out, um, they'll, you know, for lack of a better term, they'll storyboard it, they'll have all the scenes, they'll outline it, um, and then they will go and start writing chapters and things, get a draft, revise that, another draft, revise that, another draft. That, that's generally how a lot of people will, will end up writing their books. What most people don't do is just start writing a book with no idea where it's going, <laughs> and then get and get get and then get to a, a problem that they can't fix and then go and start it, start the book over again and write past that problem until they get to another problem and then start it over again. And then, but this is how Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, which is part of the reason it took him so long to write it. He started writing it and he would, he would write himself into a corner and then just, and then just go back to the beginning and rewrite it past, rewrite till he got past that, that issue. And he'd get to another issue, write himself into another corner. Then he'd go back to the beginning and start. And you can actually go and look through some of his writings and see how this, it's an insane way to write a book. He had no idea where he was going in this book. It truly was a journey the same way it was a journey for, for Frodo and Sam. An interesting point is very early on, there was a character who was a hobbit who was a little bit older than the other hobbits who had left um, and disappeared. Never knew what, knew what happened to him. And then he came back some point along Sam and Frodo's journey um, mm. and, and helped them and, 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 uh, directed them on their journey. And his name was Peregrine Took, who went by Pippin. Um, but his nickname was Strider. And so Strider oh. in the early parts of the book was not Aragorn, the high king. He was just he was another hobbit who had come back with some with some some street smarts and was going to help the hobbits oh, along. That's crazy. Their Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Tolkien wrote himself to a corner with that, went back and had to write it again. So I think perhaps that's possibly also why the book is so long. Because he kept, he just kept writing it and writing it and writing it and writing it and writing it, writing it, writing, writing, writing. Yeah. Which, you could editor to help you some of those things. Um, <laughs> however, I do think everything in the book adds to it and, and is, and is, makes it what it is. Now, I think we're going to talk about some parts that we think perhaps could have, were not that important. <laughs> but regardless of whether, of, of, regardless of, of parts in the, regardless of, of whether you like it or, or don't like parts, I think the book is absolutely unique as far as what it is. 
people have right. copied it many, many times, tried to follow it many, many times, we're not able to do it. So yeah, I apologize. That's my ramble. Um, down to take <laughs> us to the next portion. <laughs> All right. Um, well, I did want to um, take some lessons to... from Jen next time about giving. Well, yeah. well, well no, I did actually... want to defer to. Yes, go ahead, Jen. I wanted to defer to you. I was going to say, um, yes, since I did give my history segment to Ben, as this is his favorite book, it was only fitting. So well done. Uh, I pretty much uh, don't have too much to add, but because the history segment was taken away from me. I do mm-hmm. have to, in lieu of that, <laughs> add a little uh, C.S. Lewis fun fact with Tolkien. So the fun thing about the writing of The Lord of the Rings is one of the only people who had read bits of it along the way was C.S. Lewis. And for a while, Tolkien didn't even know if he would ever even publish it. Lord of the Rings. And the big reason why he ended up publishing it was because of C.S. Lewis's encouragement. So I came across this quote from Tolkien that said, he, speaking of C.S. Lewis, was for long my only audience. Only from him did I ever get the idea that my stuff could be more than a private hobby. Quite quite an elaborate private hobby. Hmm, <laughs> and yeah, for sure. he, goes on, yeah, he goes on to say, but for his interest and unceasing eagerness for more, I should never have brought the Lord of the Rings to a conclusion. So Aww. once again, goes to show that you need friends in the writing process really to encourage you along the way and get your books out there. You know, what's funny it. about that is that C.S. Lewis loved Tolkien's work. He encouraged him all that stuff. But then we talked about back with uh, Chronicles of Narnia, Tolkien did not like Chronicles of Narnia. I know. He's not a fan of it. Isn't that funny? <laughs> No, it's funny because it's like Lewis is like the very sweet, like supportive, happy. It seems like he's like the sweet, happy-go-lucky friend, and Tolkien was like the little more judgy one. But I just, you know, like you have the one friend just loves everything you do, and then the other one's a little more like judgy and like, why would you make that life choice? I love it though. Yeah. That's, that's really sweet. That's good. Yes, and friendship ends up being a big theme of Lord of the Rings yes. um, as well. So, yep. um, what we're gonna do this time to start us on our discussion is. Lord of the Rings, amongst other things, has a lot of really great characters. So how we're going to start our analysis here is delve into some of those characters and talk about what makes those characters great and really analyze these different characters in um, Lord of the Rings. So to start us off, Eva, I'm going to put you on the spot. Start us off with maybe what's your, who's either your favorite character or one of the ones that's the most like um, poignant or important to you in the text? Ooh, most important. I don't. I, I mean, however you want to interpret that question. Yeah. No, I think I think what's I think what's fun um, for me is uh, how aloof Gandalf is, um, and the way that he he obviously plays a pivotal part in the story, and and even looking at like the history of the Lord of the Rings, and in further back before even like the creation of the like he shows up on the scene thousands of years prior he's a mysterious figure and we talked about this uh a while ago just the way that like he literally disappears and doesn't is like gone for like 15 years at one point yeah and you're like come on man like you you have to know it's good why did it take you that long to get back to the shire (laughs) like get it together um and i just i really enjoy how he serves as this like I, i don't know this this character that just is looking out for other people and appears when he's like most needed right um 
but yet there's so many times where I'm like, where are you? Like you could have helped here. You could have done so much here. We needed you kind of thing. Um, right. but we find out that he's always kind of been about like his, the proper business, the things that needed to be done. He was doing, even though it didn't make sense in that moment, which is very spiritual in and of itself. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a very fun, it's, it's, it's fun. And he's very powerful when it comes to, down to it like he's very powerful he's this amazing character throughout the book um and i just i don't know it's exciting when he shows up absolutely now it's really interesting that you say that and i think that's true because like sometimes you do wonder like when you look at it's like gandalf you totally could have helped in that situation but it's almost like i know we have a whole lot of characters in this book but it seems like the hobbits are some of the main characters so it's almost like gandalf exists to like help them mentor them i think we even talked about gandalf in our mentor episode and it mm-hmm. reminds me in some way of dumbledore and harry potter where it's like dumbledore you probably could have fixed a whole lot of stuff but it's almost like whether it's just a um a plot device of the story but it's like dumbledore leaves the kids to do stuff because it's their story if you will or if it's their it's their battle to fight so it's like i see gandalf in a similar way to that you know yeah, and I think tolkien though i think like we're talking about where he would go back and rewrite i really do think that he was like purposely planning this kind of stuff out meaning like okay well like he he shows up here because he was tending to all of this other important business that we don't find out uh, about until later on Mm -hmm. um and maybe in some other books he becomes a plot device there's something about this book that things feel really natural and they feel realistic and even though they're a little messy at times even the way that he disappears for such long periods of time and shows up like he really is tending to other things. He's not just like away on some mysterious errand. And I appreciate that about, about the text. Uh, Tolkien does an awesome job with the, with the world building in that regard. That's cool. Yeah, for sure. Interesting that Dinah brought up Dumbledore. I thought it would take a, take a little longer for us to get there, but uh, (laughs) in a lot of ways, Dumbledore is like a carbon copy of Gandalf. And I think that definitely that shows like almost, almost to like a plagiaristic standpoint. Like, like it's, <laughs> he's almost exactly the same character. They, they have a little bit different in temperament, I think, sometimes. But I think it shows you again how enduring and how influential the book was. Is that with Gandalf, uh, Tolkien kind of creates his own new trope. Now, and what I mean by that is, Gandalf, Gandalf is at one point he, he's like the archetypal like wise old man character that's in just so many different things. Like, like you could even relate him to like the prophets, like, like the yeah. prophet Samuel or something like that. Like he's very much within the archetypal tradition, but at the same time, it seems like Tolkien really put a spin on him and really created, uh, really created like the niche that character. Now that, now that every single story like every single fantasy or epic story has like a gandalf character that's that's so similar to who he is not just he's like part prophet he's part like wizard he's part like part teacher um i think there's definitely parallels there to merlin which i don't think gets brought up enough yeah Um, that's true perhaps that's where perhaps that's specifically where tolkien got him but um Gandalf is the wise kind of encouraging leader, but at this, but then at the same time, he's also like a fighter throughout the whole thing. Yeah, for he sure, like just a warrior. Like, yeah, Merlin in the Arthur mythos, Merlin kind of like 
raises Arthur and helps him grow up. But then at some point he kind of disappears. And and or you could look at Star Wars. Obi-Wan Kenobi is there just for the beginning part and then he disappears, but not Gandalf. Gandalf is partly like the trainer. He trains all the heroes and helps them and stuff like that. But at the same time, he's kind of like the central character. He's the one that unites all the different groups. And Aragorn becomes the king of the whole thing, but it's really Gandalf who in the beginning brings everybody together yeah. and then does his thing and moves on. I also think it's interesting that Gandalf he doesn't change. When you think about great characters and stories, they always have some process they go through and they change by the end. Gandalf is the exact same from the beginning of The Hobbit mm-hmm. to the end of Lord of the Rings. He's the same character. Mm-hmm. And the reason that works is because we have other characters that change. But he's mm-hmm. also such an incredibly well-written character that he's written to the point he doesn't have to change. He's the same guy. Yeah. I mean, he becomes Gandalf the White and everything, and he's got he has a color change, but he's the exact same character basically. Yeah. From beginning <laughs> to end. He has a wardrobe change after yeah. Wardrobe changes. Change. Yeah. He gets his like hair's some, a little shorter, his beard's a little hair. shorter, you know. Yeah. His staff. But other than that, he's the same character. But again, it goes into the writing. He is the same character. He's so remember, he's so iconic, and then everybody writes Gandalf into their stories now. Yeah. Mm. It's when you mentioned like that, well, it's, I just guess I didn't realize until you brought it up really how multifaceted he is and how he does fulfill all these different tropes, you know, whether it's like you said, the prophet or the wise leader or whatever. And one of the more poignant scenes in the books to me, and this is, this is done incredibly well in the film version, but at the Battle of Helm's Deep where they're all fighting and it's looking super bleak and you see like Aragorn look off into like the distance and you see the sun, like at dawn coming and then, you know, Gandalf's like on the white horse, you know, and he's like coming down with like an army. And it's like the most epically cool scene. And it's like you have these warriors like Aragorn, Legolas. These are all tough people, like all these people who are there. But yet when Gandalf comes, like just reading a quote, like Aragorn says, behold, the white rider cried Aragorn. Gandalf has come again. And it's like the hosts of Isengard roared and it says down lip shadow facts. And like it's it's just so incredibly epic the way it's mentioned and for me anytime i study um like prophecy even like biblical prophecy and like talking about the battle of armageddon like jesus coming with the saints to fight the battle of armageddon i always am brought to that scene especially in the movie where it seems like all hope is lost and here comes this white rider with an army and they come and just like absolutely destroy and win the battle so gandalf is really cool in other words he's super cool Mm mm-hmm I just wanted to bring up a quote from this amazing book, which I mentioned in our Hobbit episode, called A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, oh, yes. and A Great War. I think some of my co-hosts have read it. So to all you out yes. there, if you love The Hobbit, if you love Lord of the Rings, if you love Narnia, it's a great book. But I was reading a little bit of it the last week in preparation for this episode, and um, there was a quote that was speaking about Gandalf and basically saying like his role, and obviously he has a big role in the whole thing, but... Um, The author was saying in the Lord of the Rings, it is Gandalf who summons men to battle, whose presence demands a response of the heart. Yeah. So with that quote, what really stood out to me was just that latter part where it says, whose presence demands a response of the heart. And whether you are a hobbit or whether you are a king or whether you are on the other side, there's almost this response of the heart, whether it's in a good way or a negative way. And I think to me, like that just, it's so kingly like priestly in a way right where you have to respond to this person who's standing right in front of you and for the hobbits i feel like they have no other choice but like i have to respond to him and he he invites them into that 
I feel like if it was any other character, there would be more hesitation, more doubt. But because it's Gandalf, he has that automatic authority that allows them to respond and step into whatever it is that he has for them um, next, you know, on the journey. And so I think without Gandalf, does the story move along? Yeah, I I just came across a quote, too, that I think sums up good what we're talking about, uh, Gandalf. is that There's a point where they're in Minas Tirith. It's in uh, Return of the King, and Pippin is watching Denethor and uh, Gandalf kind of kind of spar back and forth. And he looks at Gandalf, and he just starts to wonder. And he says, "What was Gandalf? In what fair time and place did he come into the world? And when would he leave it?" And and the, that question's never answered. But that mm. is kind of this idea of 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 Gandalf. And and th- there's multiple times in the story where they where they liken him to like light especially when he's uh, mm. uh gandalf the mm-hmm. light or, sorry gandalf the white he he really represents this this uh this beacon of light and if you know any of your your tolkien mythology read the silmarillion or anything like that uh we actually gandalf is what gandalf is 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 a he's basically like a, it, it's hard it's hard to equate things in Tolkien, but they were spirits that were created before the world was created, like archangels or angels, and there's this kind of lower level of spirits, and Gandalf is one of those spirits, has come from the Undying Lands, from the realm of where the the angels or the archangels or the the holy ones live, and he's come and he's been sent to earth in the body of an old man in order to lead them through these times. There was a time where where the the great mm-hmm. powers used to intervene directly into into the lives of men, and it didn't work out. So they separated themselves and said, "Okay, you guys are on your own." But they still now and then would send in send in people or send send help, and and Gandalf is that help. So in that sense, he does kind of represent like the divine intervention and mm-hmm. the the divine mm-hmm. help that we talked about with the hero's journey. Anywhere he's at. Because he's mm-hmm. he's not really a man. He comes from he's essentially kind of an angel disguised as an old man, and he's helping everybody. Perhaps that's why he does the like Evan said. He's there when he needs to be, but when he's not, yeah. he's yeah. not there. He knows when yeah. he needs to be where. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's a good part way of, of at it. Yeah, I think that's part of Tolkien's. Um, and I don't know how much of this he had lined out completely when he's writing the book. A lot of it almost seems like it was instinctual for him because he'd read so much mythology and read so much Bible stuff. But he was a devout Christian. Um, and I think perhaps Gandalf is maybe a little bit of his his way of putting his theology and putting some of that 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 spiritual or Christian aspect into the book without it being overt and overwhelming what's going on in the story. It's very, mm-hmm. very subtle, but perhaps that's something of what he's doing. Because it's it's there in other places too, just little hints. Yeah, yeah. It's funny thing... how. Oh, go ahead, Evan. Uh, I was just gonna say it's funny how we see him as like this div- this being of divine will, and yet like no one respects him at times. <laughs> and like he'll come with like he'll be like, yeah, I think we should do this, like the you know form the fellowship, like we got to take this, and pe- people are like, yeah, I'm not so thrilled about that idea. Like, <laughs> like he he's supposed to be this. Yeah, he's supposed to be this like this eternal being that's a part of the divine will of like good and some, and they still kind of just blow him off from time to time. And he still has to play politics a little bit. Um, even as this like representative of, like I said, all the good in the world. And I yeah. just, I find that so funny. It's really frustrating. 
Well, Evan, that's just like life. Like people don't always yeah. listen to God or godly counsel. Yeah, totally. Good that's totally. Humans to every do. day. Yeah, it just funny. drives me. It's like it's so frustrating to look at. I thought frustrating Gandalf would have been in these people. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he's like because he just basically is. He shows that he's not like even portraying like any like a fraction of his full power in That's front of people. True. Yeah, because he's meant to be unassuming, and so mm-hmm. it's just yeah. I I I love that aspect of well, it. Well. Okay, speaking of that, like if Gandalf did display all of the power that he had, then people probably wouldn't rise up to do their part even in fighting the battle and even thinking about how he like leaves and then comes at like the right time, right? And I think that's so intentional. I was actually thinking today about like in Narnia when Aslan has Peter like fight that battle, knowing that he's going to end up having to sacrifice his life and that he will not be in that last battle until you know the end and so peter needs to have that battle by himself in order to be prepared for what's to come and i think that's the same throughout lord of the rings is these different characters have to learn how to fight themselves like even the hobbits when they get away from the rest of the party and they are having to really um be like learn the skills and be able to survive so that they can ultimately in the end be part of that victory and i think Mm -hmm. get and not that I think I do believe Gandalf does know that. And so yeah. he, he could just come in and be like, you know, take over the whole thing. But he knows that's that's not what it's about because he needs them to become part of this fight for good against evil. It needs to be their mission. It needs to be what they're fighting and believing for. So I think it's true. once again, Gandalf just guiding the story along, guiding them towards it's it. True. And even when they're making mistakes and he's probably just sitting there in a corner, just shaking his head. Yeah, it's <laughs> you know? true. And just like God does with us sometimes. Well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> one thing that I think is interesting about Gandalf too, and I want to pull back from what you were saying in your little intro, Benjamin, when you were talking about, it almost feels like it's a mesh of like hobbits and then mythology. Because one thing I noticed when I was reading it this time that the hobbits are incredibly well-drawn characters. I feel like I know them a lot of, you get a lot of action and dialogue, but then your other characters who are important to the story, like the rest of the fellowship, you know, like Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli you don't really get a lot of them you don't get a lot of dialogue you don't get a lot really of personality Gandalf I would say would be the exception of amongst the like big people and I say that in air quotes anyone not a hobbit (laughs) um so that's another thing I feel like that's interesting about Gandalf and like reading it this time I was expecting to see so much more about Aragorn because I mean we know he's a great guy he's a great character but we just don't we don't see a ton of that on the page you know and it's hard to, to 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 break away like what I know from the books and then from the films, because obviously in the films, they, they draw the characters out a little more, but it was just interesting because it's like, it's definitely the Hobbit's books. And so all these other characters are like side characters or maybe almost like seen from the Hobbit's point of view. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I would disagree with that a little bit um, in that. I think there's a, there, there's a point it, it's, it's the Hobbit's journey from beginning to end, but there's a point where Aragorn comes in and becomes kind of a secondary hero especially in the fact that when you read the books when you get to two towers and return of the king uh, part one is just aragorn his story and then the, yeah. the next part of it is just the other ones um i think i agree with you on legolas and gimli even though they do they kind of have their own beautiful uh arc where they become where they get over kind of like their their dislike of each other they're kind of yeah. like you know pseudo racist dislike of each other and they become <laughs> friends and they love and they become the best of friends um with aragorn 
I, I, the reason I disagree with Aragorn is because when he comes in with the hobbits in the beginning, when he's more Strider, that's where that's I think we true. get fair enough. I, I think we get all of his like character. We get and we get some of his development all in that portion. And then it's interesting because, and I'm thinking about this right now. There's a in the movies he doesn't take up the sword, um, the shards of Narsil and the, the the sword of the king and the. Uh, Undo the flame of the West. He doesn't take that up to the end of Return of the King, and I see why they did that because it, it works better for a movie. But in the books, he takes it up at the Council of Elrond. Mm. So it's almost like he has this mini arc from Strider to Aragorn, the King, in that point. And then after that, I think I can see he, he's he's kind of more become the King that he is, and he has a couple more steps, yeah. but he doesn't have as much. But that portion where he's Strider, I think we really get this 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 build for his character and and we really find out who he is versus versus later where it's it's more he's already he's kind of he's kind of settled into his role a little bit more yeah. different from the movies in the movies that arc takes the whole entire trilogy for him to get to that point and he keeps kind of rejecting it and he gets to it at the end you see what i'm saying yeah. no that's true like I'll, I'll give you that that's true yeah I, I guess you do see more development earlier on rather than rather than later like even when the story focuses more on them um, it just maybe just I don't know maybe it's just more like the way the characters are drawn. I just feel like I I know the Hobbits more than for sure. I know the other the other characters. Yeah, and I think that's because the Hobbits, like we talked about with the Hobbit episode, they're supposed to represent us, like the yeah. reader, mm-hmm. the normal person. So Tolkien really goes in on them, and they're great. Hobbits are great. Like oh, they're wonderful. Hobbits made, yeah, Hobbits are like his probably most important. Uh, innovation like everything else in the lord of the rings he got from somewhere except for hobbits he basically created those from scratch that's his own yeah. thing yeah it's true it's true one thing i did like about aragorn and this is in the in the return of the king um you know after the big battle and they go to the houses of healing and one thing it says about him and just because it brings up spiritual things when it says um it is said in old lore the hands of the king are the hands of a healer and so like aragorn you know, like bandages their wounds and basically heals them. So of course that brings up total spiritual, you know, things about like, you know, Jesus being the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and also the healer and the one who purchased our healing and bought our healing. So I like, it's like with unlike Lord of the Rings, I feel like there's, there's little slivers and threads of like, and I, I, I'm hesitant to call it an allegory or anything, but like maybe um echoes of things that you see in the Bible or shadows of things that you see in the Bible. And I definitely think that that's, that that's one of them with Aragorn there. And I appreciate mm-hmm. that it's not like a one-to-one where like, there's one person that represents like the spiritual. There's one person that represents like the savior. Like exactly. there's, there's really impressive, like there's a ton of characters that are written impressively that show these various like savior characteristics or mm-hmm. divine aesthetics like right all of those things benefit those characters um and like what you're saying with the hobbits like their entire purpose is to eat drink and be merry right and so the ones that leave are the people that are called like out of just that everyday lifestyle that everyone else is doing and they defy and they finally leave that lifestyle um and like a big part of it, they're abstaining from certain things. They're not eating as many meals. They're like their focus is set upon the mission before them. And that's like super cool that we're mm-hmm. relating to them in that Christian mission evangelistic yeah. kind of idea. And then you have all these other characters that are kind of shepherding them along and, and assisting them when they need it. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, and just really quick to set it 
set it rest the whole uh, allegorical thing. Uh, Tolkien writes in his forward, he says, as for any inner meaning or message, it has it has in the intention of the author none. It is neither allegorical nor topical. Later he writes, I cordially dislike allegory and all its manifestation. Yeah, that was I a little that... dig at Lewis right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, well, hold, well, again, we'll read this. He, he writes, I think that many confuse applicability with allegory. No, I but know. But the one resides in the freedom of the reader and other than the purpose domination of the author. And that's kind of the way Lewis saw it too. Now, Lewis loved allegory yeah. and used it in other places, but he specifically, we read those quotes too, specifically said Chronicles of was right. not allegory. Yeah. So it's, it's similar in the same sort of way. Um, Tolkien, people have, people have always tried to put like a World War II allegory in this. And Tolkien has always mm-hmm. said, no, that's not what it, in fact, there's a part, a great part later where he talks about that, where he says, if this had been a World War II allegory, I would have done this, 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 and this, and I would have changed it this way. Yeah, for sure. Um, so he doesn't mm-hmm. try to, to, uh, um, change the allegory and stuff there, but back to something else you said, Don, and Evan was picking up on it. Uh, I think the aspect of magic in Lord of the Rings is also very different. And, and that power it has. Um, and, and at any point when I'm talking, guys, please jump in and stop me because if you let me, I'll talk this whole entire episode. So, but, but, but <laughs> this, good. I'll just this, sit back and listen. <laughs> I've, people have said stuff like, okay, what's the difference between the magic in Lord of the Rings or like in Harry Potter or something? Else? Yeah. Um, the difference between those two, I think, and we see what you guys think of this. In Harry Potter, the magic is much more, it's spells, it's this, it's that, it's like, Texas, it's like magical creatures. They have a wand. Only certain yeah. people have it, and it's separate from the rest of the world. However, in Tolkien, the magic is much more of an elemental force that's kind of in everything. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Diana mentioned Aragorn, the, the hands of the king or the hands of a healer. Aragorn, as the king, has kind of this inherent magical power that when he tends people, they, they're, they're healed and they get better. And, and uh, it's similar in other areas too, kind of like the ring itself. What power does the ring have? Well, it makes you invisible and that's about it, but it has kind of this untapped, um, indefinable quality that lets people influence everybody else. People listen to them. People follow them. It gives them great force of will. It gives them great, um, strength of character when they use the ring. And yeah. it's like the magic is like, it's like, it's almost like it's built into the world in the foundations of the world and it pops up kind of everywhere. It's not like certain mm-hmm. people that have magic and certain people don't. Yeah. It, More like the force almost like with star Wars, it's just like the way of life in that specific world. But then again, again, I think that's part, I think that's part of Tolkien's idea of kind of the, the quote unquote religious quality of it is yeah. that the power is not like this certain separated group of people. Mm-hmm. that are the wizards or the magicians it's everywhere throughout the world and everybody can it manifests in different ways in everybody and everybody can kind of use it in different ways really the only real character in the book who really uses like what we think of as quote-unquote magic is uh, gandalf yeah you know in like mm-hmm. his uh, like like but I mean, what does he do? He shoots fire, like he can create fire and stuff like that. That's the only, everybody else. It's he can make of, cool fireworks. Yeah, really, I was going to say. He makes fireworks. <laughs> I think he shoots light out of his staff and like yeah. uh, pushes people away. Um, mm-hmm. Things like, that's the only place magic is really using kind of a wizard quality. Every, everywhere else, it's just inherent in the ground or in the water. As it well, kind of with Galadriel, like unique, with her gifts. It's very unique. She gives, yeah. Galadriel. But, mm-hmm. but she never like says a spell. She never like no. looks like, a, no. like a, none of that. It's like 
And, and that's the thing. The elves have a special kind of magical quality that's just yeah. inherent in them. Like the elvish rope. Yeah. I just started reading... Um, I just started reading another one of my favorite fantasy, fantasy series is the Aragon books um, that were yeah. about the dragon riders. And in that one, there's elves and they can all use magic. Whereas in Tolkien, they're just magical. Like it's like in their DNA, they're magical. So everything they do is kind of magical. Do you see what I'm saying? That's different. Yeah, from like, true. You know, like expecto patronum or whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? Which I think mm-hmm. is part of the genius of the work. Yeah, for sure. It's different from everybody else. Well, and it's representative. Like all the elves, like all of their magic is derived from from light, essentially, right? Like all of these things are. You go back to even the Silmarils. It's like contained light within these within these gems and these jewels, and even like Mithril is like a contained light, basically that has magical properties. And I think that's really cool that that's like the foundation of the good, the good type of magic. Whereas you have the the fire and the darkness and the things like that on the, on the other side. And mm-hmm. so it reinforces, it's not just magic for the sake of magic. It reinforces yeah. the good versus evil struggle. Um, right. And there's even tropes and themes like where you can kind of tell, Oh, like this person um, like Saruman's like, you can see some bad stuff going on because there's some themes and some tropes with the dark magic and stuff like that. They're like, Oh, I see what that is. That's not all light. That's not all good stuff. For sure. I like what you mentioned, Evan, about how we get, well, like I started to say we get like little echoes of spiritual things, but like you said, we don't have like a one-to-one ratio. We have all these different characters who embody different spiritual things, whether it's Gandalf or whether it's Aragorn. And of course there's lots of similarities or things that we can discuss with Frodo himself even just the part with him, you know, carrying the ring and that being his burden to bear, just like, I don't want to, you know, shoehorn in too much of a spiritual metaphor. But if you think about Jesus carrying the weight of the world and carrying the sin of the world so that none of us would have to, here you have Frodo taking on this ring, had this task that was appointed to him. And he was doing it not just for himself, but he was doing it really literally to save the world. And he felt this, this was yeah. his burden that he was supposed to take on. So he took it so that no one else would do it. And at multiple times, even throughout the book, he would like when people offer to help him, he's like, he says, no, it's my burden to bear. Like, I'm not mm-hmm. supposed to like let anyone else do that. This is something that I'm supposed to do. This task is appointed to me. And so mm-hmm. he goes and does it. And you just see like, even just like, I was struck reading, I guess maybe it's more in the two towers where, cause you mentioned Benjamin, it's like you have the first half of the book and it's all about Aragorn and you have, you know, Aomir and Gimli and Legolas. And then the whole second half of the book is Frodo and Sam and Gollum and about how much lonelier Frodo and Sam's journey was compared to all the, you know, mm-hmm. the rest of it. Because what they had to do was, it was a lonely journey, you know? Mm-hmm. So oh, I definitely it's painful saw some, to read. Yeah. Oh, oh it, it really sure is. Heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. Tolkien really amps up, like, the, the the seriousness of this book, even over The Hobbit. Like, mm-hmm. this book is so, it's so dark and serious and, like, tragic throughout. Mm-hmm. Like, it's fantasy, obviously, but but it's so, like, it, it, it's realistic in the way it, they, they, they suffer. Obviously what they're doing is not realistic, but like their suffering is realistic and the way they respond to it is, I think so, as you guys say, it, it's, it's written, it's written so well. And yeah. Frodo just put through the meat grinder. Absolutely. You know, and Sam, and Sam. It's mm-hmm. amazing. There's anything left of Frodo by the end. Like, Seriously. Yeah. 
And I think that's a, obviously that shows like the human condition. Like we can thrive yeah. through anything, even the most like ridiculous circumstances. And the will, like the will, Frodo's willpower is just like next level. Um, but it, obviously, like Sam's there to push him along at certain points. Um, even yeah. though Sam's like also kind of a trouble, you can be trouble at certain parts of the story, but um, just like, I don't know. I, I feel like how in the world did he like go on? I feel like I would just yeah. not do anything after. <laughs> well, it's like he doesn't, but, right? It's like he goes off yeah. to the land of the elves or whatever. I think too, though, like in reading that section, that's where you see so much of Tolkien's war experiences yeah. in that, especially in the Dead Marshes. And I remember when I first saw the movies and I was watching that part where they're going through the dead marshes and they see, see the faces, you know, in the water and just watching, I was like, oh my gosh, this, this like reminds me of the battle of Somme. And I didn't know Tolkien's history at all. And then reading, read, obviously reading the book, this is my first time reading the series. And I was like, oh my gosh, this like reminds me of the battle of Somme. And then coming to know now that he had fought in the battle of Somme, the deadliest battle in world war one. And so it just has that where you, where you're like, how did men survive this? Like, how did they get out of it? And even everything mm-hmm. that they went through and still they like came out on the other side, like it, it blows my mind. And I think that's yeah. what we see, even when we're watching this, you know, if we're watching the movies or we're reading it, we're like, how are you still alive? Mm-hmm. And the biggest part of that is Frodo would not have made it without Sam. Obviously, we know right. that. And I just think like in those loneliest of places, because there was at least one other comrade, you know, you have those rare stories where there's like, you know, one lone man made it. But for the most part, it's because of one other. All you need is one other comrade that's in there with you that gives you that like human touch to keep going and that's what I love about Sam you know and you were alluding to how sometimes how Sam can be like a bit of a troublemaker but my favorite character in the story is Sam I always say like everyone needs a Sam in their life and I I truly like I believe that with with Brodo he wouldn't have made it without Sam you know and right he wished he would have gone on alone but realizes at the end like without him he wouldn't have survived and I just think It's just the the depiction in the novel. It's so brutal. It's so dark. It's it's kind of like you're like shivering with them, you know. Right. They're going without food. It even talks about you know their their wet feet and yeah. thinking of that with soldiers, how their feet would get so wet, you know, and that would get trench. They would get um, trench fever, you know, all of that. So it's just. It's just amazing how how well depicted. I mean, Tolkien writes this, and it comes from his war experiences. And he had written to his son Christopher that a lot of his writings, you know, we we've talked about in the Hobbit episode how he started drafting material um, in the dugouts of World War One, and he said a lot of his early writings was to cope with the atrocities and the horrors of the war. And so we just think like even with such a deadly war, at least there was some good that came out of it and Tolkien be able to write a story that, you know, in the end, good is going to triumph over evil. Absolutely. That's a good connection, Jen. I never thought about that. You know, the very warfare. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, very interesting thing about Sam is he's, if correct me if I'm wrong, but he does what Frodo cannot do. And I think him and Tom Bombadil, I believe are the only ones that actually give the ring back or they're actually able to let go of the mm. ring at the end right and Sam gives it back to Frodo oh 
Bilbo does he? Have, oh, yeah, that's right. So Bilbo does as well. He gives it up. Three There's of them. Two characters. Bombadil doesn't really count. He's got he's got his own. He's like. Can we talk about him for a second? Like I don't. Yes. Yeah, so let me let me he, make the point. Bombadil okay, is like he's not the same. He doesn't count. Um, the, and, and here's just real quick before we get that because that'll be a, a, a topic. Is that yeah. it's so the ring plays so many uh, roles in the story, and one of the things it does is it tests people's character. Yes. Think about think about all the people, the different people that it tests. Yes. Um, Bilbo's tested. Gandalf is tested. Frodo is tested. Faramir is tested. Formir is tested. Aragorn is tested. Galadriel, Sam, they're all yeah. tested by the ring, and mm-hmm. the ring just dis- how you react to the ring decides what kind of character you are. Mm-hmm. Okay, so obviously Boromir mm-hmm. fails the test. Yeah. Um, Gollum failed the test. Obviously, uh, there are some people because they they tried to take the ring. There are some people who are offered the ring but refuse it, and that shows their character. Gandalf won't take it. Aragorn, I know in the movie he's offered it. In the book, I don't know if he specifically offered it, but he has the opportunity. He doesn't take it. It's offered to Galadriel. She doesn't take it. it yeah. Faramir, Faramir has the chance to take it. He doesn't take it. It shows her quality. But like Dinah said, there's only there's only two characters in the book who actually take the ring, wear it, but then can give it up. And that's yeah. Bilbo. And I think it's a little different for him because it's it was a different time. It was when it was far away. Sam is the only other one, and he wears it in Mordor when they're close to the tower. And specifically says My guy. the ring's power increases as yeah. it goes. So Sam, Sam is the one, even Frodo, in the end, even Frodo yeah, exactly. can't give it up. Yep. Uh-huh. Yep. Now, he, he had to carry it through all that stuff. So it's different from Sam. Sam didn't wear it as long. But Sam is the only character to wear the ring to at that point and to voluntarily give it up. That's why I think, here's another interesting thing about the book, it it. it it deals with diff- people's different power levels. You have someone yeah. like Sauron mm-hmm. who's defeated by the most humblest of characters. And so who's the most powerful character in the book? I think the most powerful character in the book is Samwise Gamgee. Yes. Because of that, mm-hmm. because of that thing. The one with the most moral strength and moral character is Sam yeah. because he's the one who does that. And that puts him above everybody else in the story. Mm-hmm. Even Ganda. And all the stuff we just talked about. Sam is the only person to do that. What do you guys mm-hmm. think of that? Yeah. Do, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I think so too. Do you think too, it's just because he's like, he wears a lot of humility. I feel like from the mm-hmm. first Absolutely. moment you meet Sam, you know, overhearing Gandalf talking to Frodo, like he just, he's just this humble little gardener. <laughs> and I yeah. think maybe that's why, because I feel a lot with the ring, it represents a lot of pride and the fall and, you know, all of that. So I think that's why Sam's able to in the end, because he is so humble and he thinks of others before himself so much so that when Frodo is going on this journey, he says like, if you don't come back, sir, then I shan't. That's certain. You know, he, he's like, I, if you don't come back, I'm not coming back either. Like who else is saying that, you know, and that's why he's able to, yeah, he, he is the strongest, I think, of, of all of them. Right. Yeah, he, he's very simple. And I think that's part of what it mm-hmm. is, but he's very simple. And there's a part in the book, I think it's in two, it's either in two towers or return of the King, where it says that Sam, Tolkien writes something on the lines of Sam never, at this point, Sam had never expected to get home. But he was yeah. on a simple mindset where he could push that off until the the, the journey was over and just go through. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. And he's the only one when it comes down to it who has like an, a, an optimistic outlook. And it mm-hmm. reminded me of uh, Puddle Glum from the Silver Chair. Mm. Because remember the Silver Chair, 
Yeah. Uh, Pilgrim is that is that character that's just negative all the time. Is always everything's horrible, everything's right. He's just negative, negative, negative. But then when they're when they when they face the that evil queen and they don't know what's right, they don't know what's true, they don't know who to believe. Puddle Glum and the queen comes and Puddle Glum is the only one who says, you know what? You know, yeah, you're right. You won. You've got it. But we're not going to do what you say because we know that's wrong. We were, we, we're holding on to what we know is right. And just, you know, wh- whatever you say, sure, kill us, whatever. But we're going to hold on to what's right. He's the only character who can do that. I thought right. of that when we were talking about Sam. His simplicity nice. and like you said, Jen, mm-hmm. his humility. Yep. Mm-hmm. For sure. Mm-hmm. So can we talk about Tom Bombadil for a minute? Sure. Go to Bombadil. <laughs> who, okay. If, okay. I would never dare to tell Tolkien what to put in his book. But why is Tom Bombadil in the books? If you guys, maybe you guys can tell me why. If you know, that's the one thing that Peter Jackson cut from the film. I well, think that well, was a very. It's not the one thing. There's a lot <laughs> of things. It's not the one thing. But I'm thinking about extended edition. Yeah, extended edition. Because he's not even in the extended edition, I don't think, is he? That there, there's basically like three chapters from the book that are, that take place take like two or three weeks, and it's totally gone from the movie. Totally, yeah. just not even. That's one of them. But so, okay, the only interesting thing about him is he, yes, he has the ring. He gives it back, but he wears it, and he doesn't become invisible. And that's just like, oh ho hum, like just skipped over. But is there something deeper in that? Like, what's the deal with Bombadil? Ugh. Evan and Jen go, and I'm gonna talk at the end. I don't know. Like honestly, reading that part just reminded me of Santa Claus and Narnia. Yeah, <laughs> like, hey, fair enough. Fair enough. It I'll really did feel like that. Father Christmas. <laughs> it really did feel like Father Christmas. Like even because he's right, describes like like jolly. I don't know. I just see him like sitting there, like yeah. Oh, oh. I don't know. Like he just has. That kind of character. Um, I actually it took me a moment to remember who the character was. I had yeah. like, what are they talking about? Yeah, I don't know. I really don't know. Maybe maybe Evan has some deep insight, but something deep. Us. Yeah, hit us with it, Evan. Well, so okay. The only thing that I have is biblically speaking, you talk okay. about the character. Okay, of... he pulls out the Bible. Yeah. So hey, let's hear it. So the moniker <laughs> the moniker for Bombadil is is like the oldest and the fatherless, which is the same moniker as Melchizedek in the Old Testament, who Abraham meets and gives his tithe to. And he's this representative of basically now some people are like, oh, he's he's like a representative of Christ in the Old Testament. It it may just be he's like a pure, a, a, like kind of like Father Christmas, though, like he's a <laughs> yeah. being of pure light who huh. shows up and is just kind of like a, the representation of all that is good in the world. And I almost feel like it's like we go all the way back to the beginning, right? And you have like who created everything. He may be that character that they didn't want to put into the in the movies because again, it's so impossible to like nail him down on who he is. But the best I can see is that he's a representation of that Melchizedek who might be a a a form and like I don't even know what to, how to describe it uh, like a shadow of the Christ or like somebody who is just a, a being of light and good. And he's here for a moment and gone the next. And that's the, that's the closest thing biblically that I have a relationship to because of the moniker oldest and fatherless, which is similar to Melchizedek, who is like without mother or father and without beginning or ending is the way that Melchizedek is described in old Testament. So 
That's the hmm. closest thing I have to it. I I don't know. I don't know. Outside of that. I think it's good. Like, I feel better Ooh. about him now. A little, I feel a little better about him now. <laughs> what do you think, Dinah? You asked it. No, that's what I'm saying. I, I don't really know. Like, I feel a little bit better about Evan, but it is. It's like it's this random break and we get all this stuff about Tom Bombadil and his wife, Butter Bar or Butterball or Gold Golden something. I can't remember what her name is. It's something weird. Goldberry. Goldberry. Butterball. <laughs> It just made me think of something like Goldberry. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Goldberry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, I don't understand. The, or the only thing maybe I would try to tie it to is you have these different places that the hobbits and they get on their journey that are like places of rest. Like, um, mm, uh, mm-hmm. Rivendell yeah. is That's like a place archetype. of rest. You, That's right. An Rivendell is a place so, yeah. of rest. Galadriel's place is a place of rest even with like Faromir in some way is a respite like a place of rest for Sam and Frodo so that's the only mm-hmm. thing I can see as this place where they rest they get like um supplies and get like invigorated and then they go off to the rest of their journey so that's the only thing I can think of with it but yeah but the thing a- about the ring is just weird th- there's also that the next chapter about the barrow downs where they go and they face those barrow whites and that night are those, really the, doesn't are ever- those the eating tr- the human eating trees no, no, no. That's that's before. No, that's like that. But that yeah. okay. Even that part too. Then Tom, the old forest, yeah, with the yeah, trees that are crazy. <laughs> Tom Bombadil, and then the barrel <laughs> barrel whites, where they go and they have that whole adventure that really doesn't have anything to do with anything else. Like it's a whole sequence of stuff right there. That mm. whole sequence is gone from the movie. Yeah, like, like, yeah. like they basically they they go from let's see, uh, they basically go from the Shire to Bree, and everything else in between is cut out. Yeah, it's all gone. You know, hmm. here's what I, I think the first or second time I read this, this is what I wrote at the end of the barrel, the barrel white chapter with this whole stuff. I wrote, what is the point of these two chapters with Tom Bombadil and the barrel whites? They slow down the story and actually create problems later. They are charming and sometimes beautiful, but they don't add anything. Perhaps they serve as a peaceful little holiday like Baron's house in the Hobbit. Hmm. And then I put also Tom does give them swords. That's where they get swords, which is always important in a hero story. True. And it's not in the movie, but mm-hmm. later it talks about um I think it's when they're on Weathertop and they're with the Nazgul. I think it refer- when they're menacing them with their swords, I think Tolkien says something about these were swords that that were carried by kings from across the sea or blah blah whatever. So they actually kept the the, the Nazgul at bay for a second. So that's important. But I put but the fact remains both of these chapters seem very out of place. So I think there's the archetype thing. I think there's the, the sword deal. Um, but here's something I noticed this last time uh, I read the story. At the at the beginning of chapter eight, Fog and the Barrow Downs, the first paragraph says this. That night they heard no noises, but either in his dreams or out of them, he could not tell which, Frodo heard a sweet singing running in his mind, a song that seemed to come like a pale light behind a gray rain curtain and growing stronger to turn the veil all to glass and silver until at last it was rolled back and a far green country opened before him under a swift sunrise. And then he wakes up. Now that kind of seems out of place, but but let's if we jump over to the very end of Return of the King, uh this is on page 1007, so yeah, it's a long <laughs> book. At the very end of Return of the King, this is where Frodo leaves and he goes with Gandalf and Galadriel and Elrond onto the ship heading into the west toward the Undying Lands. Um for me, for me, it's page 1007 says, 
And then it seemed to him that as in his dream in the house of Bombadil, the gray rain curtain turned all to silver glass and was rolled back and he beheld white shores and beyond them a far green country under a swift sunrise. So mm. what does Bombadil do? I think Bombadil is a foreshadowing of what's going to come at the end. First of all, that dream that, that Frodo has in his house, in the safety mm -hmm. of his house, he has the dream. So we even have it right there. We have that little flashback that Frodo, at some point, he's going to leave Middle Earth and go to the end or whatever that is. But then also just Bombadil himself in this yeah. happy-go-lucky kind of perfect, almost it's almost like Eden. It's almost Edenic, mm -hmm. like the Garden of Eden, like this beautiful kind of perfect thing. Perhaps this is a foreshadowing of what will come later. True. At some huh. Yeah. That's kind of what I think it is. I think mm -hmm. all the things we talked about could be possible. Yeah. But then also, I think we got to keep in mind mm -hmm. that in the end, Tolkien wrote in these books what he wanted to write. Right, he loved for sure. Mythology and weird whimsical characters. So he wrote that, put it, and said, <laughs> "Hey, I like it. It's staying in. We're not getting rid yep. of it." So, no, it's true. What well, I, I, yeah. What do you think he had to cut out in order to leave that in? If he left that in, what other stuff would he cut out? You know, I think I it was know, for right? himself. <laughs> yeah, he wrote it. Fair enough. Yeah, it was a mental rest like, from the story. Lewis put yeah, Father he, Christmas in Narnia, so you know, do you right, do yeah, you, Tolkien? Right. And Tolkien, yeah. he, you can tell from his writing, and he says later, he doesn't know who Tom Bombadil is. He doesn't know what he is. He That's wrote funny. him and he thought he was cool. He doesn't know how where he fits into the mythology. He doesn't know what he is, but he liked him, so he left him. Just yeah. like I'm sure you asked Lewis, why is Father yeah. Christmas here? I don't yeah. know. I wanted to put him in there. But, but or, for a minute, Lewis... Lewis... <laughs> no, go ahead, Jen. Gonna... No, I was just going to make a joke. Or Lewis was reading the draft and just added him into the draft. Like, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and add. He won't notice. <laughs> said, you don't like Father Christmas and Narnia. Exactly. So. No, no, but we, and we jokingly said, Jen, you compared Father Christmas and Tom Bombadil, but after the stuff that you said, Evan and, and Benjamin, even that you mentioned, it's like, if you think about Tom Bombadil, yes, it was a place of rest. And you said a foreshadowing of things to come. They got their swords. Father Christmas comes. It means, you know, that Christmas is coming and he gives them mm -hmm. all gifts. He gives them supplies, things that they're going to need. Doesn't he give them like sure. breakfast and gives them food? Yeah. So it's like this invigorating sure. thing that's going to help them along mm -hmm. their journey. So maybe it is, if anything, not to be cheesy, but just like, like, you know, Father Christmas and the magic of Christmas that came and gave them what they needed. Because who doesn't love Christmas, you know? And who doesn't mm -hmm. love, like, mm -hmm. Santa, Father Christmas? It gave them mm -hmm. the tools that they needed when it looked dark to go ahead and go along their journey. So maybe that's what Tom Bombadil was there before. So well, I'm feeling better yeah. about it now. Right? It yeah. adds to the ethos, the, the yeah. mythology of what Lord right. of the Rings is. Like, you're just like, what what is this? And Tolkien's like, hey, it's my guy. It's my <laughs> <Hey>. character. <laughs> well... Yeah, it also made me. It also makes me think because there were parts in the journey where they had bad dreams, mm -hmm. like when they were at the mm -hmm. um, what's True. the name of the inn, and the dark riders were the nearby. And, pony. Oh yeah, the prancing okay, pony. Okay, yes, there we go, the prancing pony. Um, and mm -hmm. and they have they all like there's a few of them that have bad dreams, and because of what because of the evil that's lingering near. So then to have like a little further on and to have these sweet dreams, it's like okay, even though there's evil present. Like there is still light in this battle that we're, you know, going towards this mission. And yeah, I, I like that. Yeah, yeah, me too. It fit like I'm I'm feeling better about it now. And I gotta be For honest sure. with you guys, like Tom Bombadil is always the point in reading these books where I get there and I go, I love these books. Like every <laughs> part of it. Like every yeah. even this boring I'm because I'm like, what's what's going on here? I'm like, I don't know, but I love it. Like <laughs> Even all the boring parts, Tom Bombadil, there's all these little throwaway lines that reference this, yeah. mm -hmm. reference that. And you're mm -hmm. like, what is that? 
Yeah. Where did that come from? Who's this mm-hmm. guy? And like just yeah. over and over and over. And I'm Oh, it's great for sure. I love I love every line of this book <laughs> from beginning to the end. Like the whole thing. So if he would have taken it out, like what was it the was it the right decision to take it out of the movie? Yes. That would have Definitely. slowed down the whole thing. Right decision. But mm-hmm. it's I love it and it's in the it's in the book. Tolkien loved it. And I'm I'm for it. I still don't like I said, I don't get 100% what it is either, right there, but I'm for it. Then one question I have for you guys is we don't, because we've talked to the characters and I think the characters are phenomenal. We don't get very many female characters in the book, but what, because we basically get, there's Arwen who basically, who for the most isn't really in it. So we really have Eowyn and we have Galadriel. So mm-hmm. I want to know what you guys think of basically the two women in the book. Because my thought is that we don't get a ton of women, but I think the women that Tolkien does write are really good and they're strong, good women. We just don't get very many of them. So what do you guys think about Galadriel and Eowyn? I can go, but again, like, <laughs> I want everybody else to get a chance to yeah. talk. So everybody else would like to, to go for it. I Okay. I mean, I appreciate... Um, I think Tolkien was like, I'm not a woman. I'm only going to write strong women and not maybe write things that he wasn't. uh, I don't know. It seems like maybe you don't have as many characters. He's a male writer. He's probably not going to write things that he's not super familiar with, but he probably had some people in his life that I think represented strong women, whether one represents certain people in his life um, but just to show, I think, some some value to the fact that these characters also have fight and purpose and fit into the grand scheme of what's to be accomplished here. Um, because they're awesome characters. They're Like I said, they're, they're as strong as you could make them. And yeah. as determined as you could make them and as like driven by the mission as you could make them. Um, and so I think he does the female characters justice, but he also probably didn't want to fill it to the brim because there's only, I, I it's probably difficult for him again, as a, as a male writer to write accurately about multiple female characters. That's all I have to say. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I think one thing that I found admirable is that even upon injury, there is still a willingness to want to fight. And especially like near the end where, um, Oh, what's the name of the house? The Healing House. Is it literally the just called like the King's? Okay, there we go. The, the House of Healing. <laughs> yeah. Considering it's like named everything, and he had this very cool name, and that was just the Houses of Healing. <laughs> the Houses of Healing. Okay. So, yeah, no <laughs> but it's a great title. It's sure. <laughs> hey, yeah. I I think it like that part's really, I think relatable. Where it's like sometimes you just need to rest, you need to heal. But then you have where you're like, but I still want to fight. And I love how even the female characters are like, nope, I don't want to take time to rest and heal. I, I, there's a war going on out there and I need to be a part of it. And so I think that's powerful. Um, hmm. I, I thought that was a really powerful part that and I could like relate to that in a way. Like you don't want to just like rest and heal, but you're like, no, like let me get out there. I can't let my fellow comrades, you know, like let them go on without me. So I think that even too, thinking about that part, okay, just talking about like the houses of healing, like I'm just thinking about it right now, like how much that must've been even for Tolkien, like when he was sitting with trench fever in a hospital and being like, there's still war going on out there, you know? Mm -hmm. And of 
being like, I mean, I can imagine for like many different people of, of what that must have felt like knowing that your closest friends are still out there and you're just sitting in a hospital bed, you know? So anyways, I digress. That's good. I like <laughs> feel it. free. Feel I free. like feel like I feel like I, I always pull in the history portion. I'm like, <laughs> it's good. No, we all bring our other things. <laughs> Do you have something you wanted to say on that, Benjamin? Yeah. First of all, let me point out that we have uh, forgotten one of the other very the other very important female character in this book, and that is Shelob, the female spider. Oh, that's very true. Who, uh, oh gosh, Con- is, okay. about her. It's very book. much. She is very I, much pitched uh, in this like evil, like goddess type thing that get Gollum is. Feelings Gollum is like, oh my god! Yeah, he's like Gollum almost like worships her at one point and like offers <laughs> the them as like a sacrifice. So I think there's oh, there's something in there about like a very. It's so it's, yeah. There's something in there. I don't know if we want to dive into it, but hey, I want to give <laughs> Shelob her due because she's important <laughs> and uh, you know still one of the most scariest characters ever, for sure. In my opinion. For um, Sauron is nothing compared to to Shelob. Well, I don't know. I think I'd rather go to the Death there. Marshes and yeah. <laughs> there's there's something in there about it says about Sauron. He knew she was there, so he left her there because it would have been it would have been way too hard for him to drive her out, and she served a purpose. So he kind of like oh. that, that's again that thing about like the power mm-hmm. rankings, like like I talked about. Like there's people with different levels of power, and it's interesting to see when these different people mm-hmm. come together. Yeah. Who wins or on, on certain different turfs, who wins? But um, I digress there. So let me go back to the female thing. Uh, <laughs> I agree with, I agree with all you guys. I, th- I think that those two female characters we talked about Galadriel and are, and Eowyn uh, uh, are both incredibly strong and they're incredibly important to the story. I think the reason why there's so many dudes in it or blokes, I, I heard, I heard it described one more time as, as a very blokey, a very blokey story. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, is that to back to Jen's point? I, I do think he, he he's kind of channeling some of his war experiences, yeah. with like his his comrades and stuff. I, I think there's uh, either Jen has said this quote at some point, or it's I've come across at some point. I think it said something like Tolkien went off to World War One, and all his friends died, and he came out of it, and like all his close friends were, were gone, and it's it, yeah. I, so I think it affected him on a level, even if it's not quote-unquote allegorical he's channeling Mm -hmm. that i also think he's writing yeah even though it is a fantasy story he is writing in a very specific kind of uh uh historical and cultural period his his fantasy story is not like some random planet so it's on earth and it's europe yeah Mm -hmm. and it's at a time where i think the cultural at that time in in the culture it's like women wouldn't have gone to war so right, there's right. not, and it's a yeah. war story. So there's not that much women mm-hmm. in there. Um, mm-hmm. it, there, except for one. That, that's why there's only one. He has this character, yeah. but there's only one of her because it would have been very rare. I think that's part of the reason why. Mm-hmm. Also, just as a side note, we forgot Rosie Cotton too. Um, that's true. She's a very important <laughs> yeah. motivator. Very important yeah. motivator for Sam, at least. Fair enough uh, to get fair back home. Uh, so, <laughs> but I agree. Tolkien writes both of those characters very strong. Yeah. And I think both of them are very archetypal. I think Galadriel is very much the, we talked about this, I think, when we talked about the hero's journey. She's very much like, there's always an archetype of the goddess or like the witch, and she can go either way. She can be a temptress yeah. or be somebody who kind of leads the hero on. And we see that in that, 
I think an overlooked scene where, where Frodo and Sam are at the mirror of Galadriel and she has that experience. I think it's a very, it's a very overlooked scene because there's a lot of foreshadowing in that story. And she, she sets out a lot of what his journey is going to be right there. And it's because yeah. of that scene that she gives them really all those gifts. And then he mm-hmm. comes back, Frodo comes back to that scene a lot when he's with Galadriel and she, she can either be this tyrant, this like evil sorceress, or she can be kind of the one who, who inspires them and then uh, helps them on their journey. Also remember Gimli, Gimli, his gift from her, yeah. he, wanted, he wanted one of her hairs and he, and he, he brings that back. Like it's like that kind of like chivalrous knight thing. Like he's fighting in service of, of this fair lady. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then at the same time, she, I feel like she's also like a, like a well-developed character. Right, she's not just an archetype. She's a pretty well developed yeah. character, um, and she's very clearly the one in charge. I feel like the one, yeah, like, yeah. Her husband's and, almost and, just like and, a side Celebron, whatever's Celebron, whatever his name is. Yeah, Celebron. Yeah. <laughs> she's the important <laughs> one there. And, and yeah. incidentally, Galadriel is the oldest, the oldest like human or elf actually in Middle Earth at that time. If you go back and look at the Silmarillion. Silmarillion. Mm, she she was actually born. In the Undying Lands, there's a whole story of the elves were the elves went there and they lived there for many years and came back. She was actually born there, so she she so there's always a, a dichotomy <clears throat> in Lewis's stories about those who have seen the light. Tolkien's, of, yeah, they yeah. So, what did I say? Sorry, Tolkien. Lewis, those yeah. who have seen the the light of the trees or seen the light of heaven, as you will. And Galadriel is one of those. So she's on a level of power that actually puts her above Elrond. Um, above anybody that's not Gandalf or Sauron Saur, or uh, Sauron. Um, or or like the Ents. The Ents are older than her. Maybe Bombadil's older, but she's very important. She's very powerful. Yeah. Eowyn also is, I think, is a good uh, archetype there because she's that, she's kind of an archetype of the female warrior, which probably mm-hmm. the way she was didn't happen in real life that much, but it's in every, right. it's in all the stories. It's in, like, every culture has, like, these stories about, like, a female warrior who, I, I, just Mulan, mm-hmm. like, let's throw yeah. Mulan out there. Like, that's, yeah very very similar you know so yep. like i don't think tolkien got it from there but it's very similar and she's I, I love how she's pitched as so feminine she's very feminine she's very beautiful she she is that lady that that all the knights are kind of fighting for um but at the same time she can also be exactly very strong when she needs to be and she serves mm-hmm. a really important purpose too she kills the witch king who is one of the big bad guys mm-hmm. um and fulfills mm-hmm. that prophecy that he would never that no man would ever kill him. And yeah. it's, no, that's a great scene mm. in the movie. It's like, it's it is. Of, oh, it's so yeah. awesome. She yeah. takes yeah. off that helmet. It's a great helmet, scene like... in the movie. It's a great yeah. scene it's, in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So For sure. it, had he written more, would it change the story? Yeah. Maybe that was how many female characters he needed. But they're both great. Mm. And also, for those of you who don't read the appendices, you actually miss out on a lot. Because there's a whole section <laughs> about Aragorn and Arwen. And finally, yeah. gives you a lot more context for it and makes her more important to the story. Absolutely. Which is what they did in the movie. Well, I just thought it was important to bring it up because I don't know, maybe it's just in my in my brain, but I feel like Tolkien may have gotten flack. Maybe he hasn't, just for not having very many female characters, like I'm sure having he did. really I'm hard sure to any. Somebody did. But I'm just want to say that the ones he wrote were good. They were, mm-hmm. They're very Absolutely. good characters, you know. Which I and think they're not weak yeah. characters either. Right. Better exactly. to have like a strong, like a few strong women right. than a bunch of weak women, you know. Exactly. Absolutely. So let's start to maybe transition on a little. And so we've talked about a lot of characters, but you mentioned at the beginning, Benjamin, we were giving your introduction, but this, 
the Lord of the Rings is just so important too. You said it, it spawned its own genre, really started its own genre. So let's talk about maybe some of the legacy or the importance or the repercussions of Lord of the Rings. So let's unpack this a little bit. What what do we mean when we say it it started a new genre? Guys, I can talk more about this if no one wants to say it, but like <laughs> seriously, like Evan, I know you wanted to talk about this, didn't you? Yeah. So yeah. go for it. Like I'll, All right. I'll, I'll take up the scraps at the end. No, you're <laughs> good. So one of the, the things that I, one of the, I'm a, I love Dungeons and Dragons, right? <laughs> um, I'm a big, that makes sense. I'm a, I'm a big D and D guy. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so what we don't quote me on that. Um, <laughs> the the Wait, invention it, it's, it's going on social media. It's this going on social internet. media. Okay, as all right, our great. <laughs> um, the uh, <laughs> the the birth of the basically like the party system, the party story of all these people that that fulfill these different roles within a part within a journeying group was born with this novel. Like I even, I was trying to think back uh, of some like, I never thought of that. It's true. Of some like literature. And I thought of like Jason, the Argonauts where it's like, you have this group of men that go on, but everyone's kind of the same person. You have a leader and then you have all these other soldiers within this. You have people of different races, of different ability, of different skill. And it's what has birthed that trope of these parties of a ranger, a wizard, a, um, a bard of sorts. Like all of these different things are... Anytime you see this within within literature, within movies, within um, really anything you can think of, it started here. No one else did this where they brought together all of these different races and and creeds and abilities and superpowers, so to speak, and did it the way that he did it. And so anytime that you see that pop up going forward, know that it started here. And I just think that's so incredible. Um, wow. Even with like you talk about Dungeons and Dragons, there was there was like an ongoing lawsuit between Dungeons and Dragons and the Tolkien estate really? because of really? all of the things that they took. Oh, and so like, yeah. even down to <laughs> even like the Ents were actual characters. Um, the Balrog was an actual character within Dungeons and Dragons. And they end having to rename things to like, instead of um, hobbits, they're halflings. And instead of Ents, they're tree Ents. And instead of mm. Balrog, it's the Balor. And so, you have all of these things that are directly impact. And so even that, you look at Dungeons and Dragons, all the things that that spawned as well, it all goes back to Tolkien's mythos in Lord of the Rings. Um, and those tropes, if you again, if you see it anywhere, it started here. And I think that is just so incredible um, because it's like, it's the backbone for so many, so many different platforms of media. Well, I think that's really interesting. You said that there was like a lawsuit. Do you know who won? Oh, yeah. Who? Like, oh, Tolkien. The Tolkien see, estate see, absolutely won. And he, that's, here's why that's so interesting is that except for Hobbits, maybe Balrogs, maybe a couple things, everything in Lord of the Rings, Tolkien got from somewhere. Everything. Mm-hmm. And, wow. and so like, that goes into this. How did he create his own genre? He got everything. Like, like hmm. so, so. All of the all of the, the writers of Rohan, that's all old English stuff. Their names are I studied a little bit of old English for yeah. my for my uh master's program in English and went through that and we literally read words. Ent is a word in old English. It doesn't mean a tree person, but it, it has another name. Um 
Oh, what's another? There, there's other ones. Like, you know how all the Rohan names have the, like the suffix or part of it? It's Ao. That yeah. means horse, or it refers to horse in Old Interesting. English. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Another mm. one is the word orc. The word orc is an Old English word. It's not a, it, it, he kind of created what those were, sort of. But 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 orcs are orcs are goblins, and then he gave them a new name and kind of beefed them up and stuff like that. But yeah. but all that is yeah. from something else. He didn't make up elves. He didn't make up dwarves. He mm-hmm. didn't make up any of that stuff. Even though I think he put his own stamp on it, he didn't make yeah. that, a lot of that stuff up. And tons of the stuff he he borrowed from other mythologies and put it together. So that would be a super hard lawsuit because there's tons of stuff that people could say, look, he got this from from this this and that. Um, so I think when you ask, well, why is this a new genre? Nobody had ever really done that before. Yeah. No, I just described. Mm-hmm. Nobody had taken all the mythologies and fairy tales in the world and put them together and like make syncretized this like their own. I don't know if that's a word. Syncretism. Synchronized. <laughs> Synchronized, but that's not what I meant. Anyways, nobody had mm-hmm. done that before and put all these scenes together. Evan said last time that, that Lewis did that. He did. Tolkien did it too. It's just a lot harder to tell. You know? Right. Right, put right. All stuff together, but but he, he and and then he created this genre which we call fantasy or high fantasy, which I don't love that that name for it because we, we talked last time we, we kind of brought this up when we were talking about uh, um, the historian. Like, what is that? Well, some people said it's fantasy. I was like, well, to call the historian fantasy and Lord of the Rings fantasy, those are two widely different books. It's like, true. How can yeah. be the same mm-hmm. genre. So right. there's kind of this epic mythological fantasy genre, whatever you want to call it, that Tolkien spawned. And there are literally, there's an entire genre where every single work is basically a variation of this book. Hmm. I, I just finished reading a book. Yeah. Um, it's a popular series. It's called the, the Shannara Chronicles. And it's a popular fantasy series. And I read the first book. And I am telling you that when I say this book is a beat, is, is a point by point rehash of Lord of the Rings, it is a point by point rehash of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now, there's a few things in there that he could the guy could have ran with, and I think in later books he did. But it from there's a character who is basically Gandalf. There's a character that's basically Aragorn. There's two characters that are basically hobbits and they're Frodo and Sam. There's <laughs> there's there's a character that like that, you know, uh comes into this little village where these guys are at night and it's a dark evil character and it wears a hood and it's looking for them. They have to run away from it and get out and they meet a guy on the way who helps them. It's Point by point, you know, yeah. and I mentioned the Aragon series. There's so much Lord of the Rings in that. They're all basically trying to rewrite Lord of the Rings. And it's a yeah. massive genre. Like you said, Evan, Dungeons and Dragons. He created this genre that people keep trying to retell and tell their variation on it. Mm-hmm. And nobody, we're not done yet. Like people are still doing it. People are still yeah. writing this stuff. Well, And there's and, always been stories of like, the the basis of this is a party of people go on a quest yeah right that is the very most basic thing and we've had that in literature before and in in myth and in legend like people go on a but he solidified his work as the gold standard for a questing a story of a questing party because Mm -hmm. it wasn't necessarily even something like they weren't they weren't going to retrieve a, a golden fleece or you know you know take the head off medusa right but they were going to return something to another place for a bigger purpose and i think that it was the reinvention of the questing story that like i said it has made this the gold standard and it's cool to think about that this is like 
a century old, like not even, right? Wow, yeah. And so it mm. has spawned so much. The majority of what we see in in media across platforms is this story being retold in a variety of different ways. And Absolutely. it's just recently been invented. Like, that's really cool to see. He had such a massive impact, especially with the world building. Like, that, we, we won't even... We don't even touch on mm-hmm. that. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. His language stuff and all that. It's very good. Yeah, he, well, he clearly was speaking to something that that everybody wanted to do. And everybody wanted because but nobody had done it before and everyone went, Oh, and everybody started started doing what he did. He spoke to something in people that people that that like connects with people. And, and even just think about the book. I was thinking about how many Think about how many scenes in this book that are just you read it and uh that quote Jen made at the beginning from that from the Hobbit, the wardrobe and the the Great War but about uh something about Gandalf, uh he causes people to respond. What was yeah, that? Jen? Have a res- that he causes people to have a response of the heart. Response of the heart. Think about how many scenes are like at least for me, I read and it just like it was uplifting and there was like a there was like an like an emotional response. Yeah. Even though it's fantasy, mm-hmm. it was it was reaching to something. Like like that mm-hmm. scene where where Sam is talking to Frodo and he's telling him all about, you know, the great tales and this and this. I wonder if we'll be in a yeah. great tale. And Frodo says, yeah. you know, well, I wouldn't have got very far without Sam. You know, and that whole thing, that whole scene. Mm-hmm. So many the scene like Dinah said, when Gandalf shows up on the roof, or, sorry, the 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 not the roof, the mountain over yeah. the horizon and he comes mm-hmm. smashing down into those orbs. It's like it 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 does it reaches some someplace in people's heart that maybe with realistic books we can't quite get there. But if we go sure. fantasy where the rules yeah. are different, we can get these sort of this this sort of feeling. And and it I think it really does yeah. respond there. So that's people have copied it because it was it's doing yeah. something people well and, and people think wanted. of the characters, right? The characters themselves in in old mythos right you're looking at characters that that the heroes are all like they're all men that are like beefy and warrior types and you look at this party system you're like oh like i you got a small sneaky one you got one that's a little pudgy that's got a big heart you got a (laughs) tall guy that does some magic and is real smart like there's just i think i think people see themselves within this and so they get to be more intimately connected to the the quest rather than just being like, Oh, this is just another big strong guy with magical mystical powers of some sort. There's a representative right. character for everybody in this. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really uh, that, especially for the, for the time that this was written, being so inclusive is awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. I like that. Absolutely. I like that. All right, you guys. One one final question before we move into our last words. Who is the Lord of the Rings? <laughs> so I think that's a question that people ask and people, you know, you have to read it closely to figure it out who is. I see you going for your book, Benjamin. and you're probably going to find take the same the quote that I have. And I'm going to say go it's Sauron. <laughs> say it's hard. It's Sauron, yeah. <laughs> it is Sauron, okay. Oh, you want, you want me to read my quote? Okay, this is in Fellowship of the Rings. And it's near the middle-ish. And Pippin, gotta love Pippin, says, Hooray! Here's our noble cousin. Make way for Frodo, Lord of the Ring. And Gandalf says, Hush! 
Those evil things do not come <laughs> into this valley, but all the same, we should not name them. The Lord of the Ring is not Frodo, but the master of the Dark Tower of Mordor, whose power is again stretching out over the world. We are sitting in a fortress. Outside is getting dark. I'm going to love how Pippin says afterwards, Gandalf has been saying many cheerful things like that. He thinks I need keeping in order. <laughs> oh, Pippin. <laughs> how cheerful, Pippin. Yeah. I know. <laughs> a, few, a few pages before that, too, uh, Gandalf is talking, talking and says, Indeed, I spoke of them once to you for the Black Riders or the Ring Race, the nine servants of the Lord of the Rings. So obviously they're the servant of the of the yeah. of Sauron. So yeah, so the titular Lord of the Rings is it seems to be Sauron. But go back to that quote you just read, Don. Lord of the Ring is not for the master of the Dark Tower of Mordor. Sure, yeah. But on some level, is Frodo the Lord of the Rings mm. because he has he he he's the one who's holding the ring. Is is the person who's holding yeah. the ring? Is that the person the Lord of the Rings at that time? Also, Frodo is the one who takes the Mordor and destroys it. So maybe Sauron was the Lord of the Rings, but in the end. Does Frodo become the Lord of the Rings? Mm. In a sense? Mm. Yeah, whoever possesses it has to have that title because it's the it is the ring that controls all other rings. So I think that's mm -hmm. I think it's a very fair argument. It just seems to be talking saying, saying something with that title of the Lord of the Rings. It's about the bad guy. Yeah. Basically, yeah. I think he tells you it's about the bad guy until the very end where I think you can realize, well, somebody else took over and, and was able to defeat him even on a different level and mm -hmm. somebody else became Lord of the Rings. Does Frodo does the title change at the end and Frodo becomes Lord of the Rings? Yeah. You know? Is it yeah, it is interesting that that's what if it is the bad guy, it is interesting that that's what he chose to call it mm -hmm. is the Lord of the Rings. That's true. It's named after hmm. named after the villain. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Wow. Well, there you have it, folks. I like I like that. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, maybe it maybe it does change depending on on who mm. has it. So, okay, before we go into last words, real quick, can we talk about something that I was surprised by because this was my first time reading the books? How the ending is not the ending in the movies, which is oh, completely yeah. cut out. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay, the journey's over, everything's good, and I'm like, wait a second. There's a battle going on in the Shire. What is happening? <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, that took me completely by surprise. I was ready That's to true. go back and, and make a cup of tea and have some scones. And nope, there's a battle going on at the Shire. So I just wanted to bring that up because I feel like, I don't know. Um, why do you think it was taken out of the movies? And what purpose does it serve in the books? I do have I, my answer, but I want to hear your guys' thoughts first. I think them for movie wise, I think it makes more sense to and the way it ended, I feel like it has to I feel like it has to end there just like thematically wise and, and the moving along of a film. So I understand why it was taken out. Mm -hmm. However, on like an archetypical story, especially if we're looking at the hero's journey, it's like it makes the hobbits come first full circle because they have to come back and restore order to what's going on. And it does answer a question of what happened to, to Saruman, which we don't really know, but it's like yeah. it's them them fighting these battles with the help of the big people, but then they come back the four of them and they restore mm -hmm. order and they take care of the problem 100% themselves on their own turf. Cause, cause that's what they whole, they went like, I, th I think close to the beginning of the book, Frodo says he wants to save the Shire, even though he ends yeah. up saving the world, he wanted to save the Shire. So it's like, he comes mm -hmm. back and it's like, Oh, well the Shire needs saving. So this is what, this is what we got to do. Yeah. And the, the, so the last page before chapter eight um, of return of the King uh, of book six, the scouring of the Shire, the Shire, they're kind of hearing some things about stuff, and so they ask Gandalf, um, "We've got you. With, you got. We've got you with us. You'll clean things up." 
And Gandalf says, I'm with you at present, but soon I shall not be. I am not coming to the Shire. You must settle its affairs yourself. That is what you've been trained for. Do you not yet understand? My time is over. It is no longer my task to set things to rights, nor to help folk to do so. And as for you, my dear friends, you will need no help. You are grown up now, grown indeed very high among the great you are, and I have no longer any fear at all for any of you. Mm. Oh, I love that. Mm. Which, that's perfect, right? It's yeah, perfect. it is. It's yeah. like, like, they it's went so through good. this, and now they can go, and they can do it on their own. Mm-hmm. Like, I agree. It was the right call in the movie. It's very yeah. anticlimactic almost. And it's funny mm-hmm. that one of the one of the few complaints people have about Return of the King is it does seem like it ends twelve different times, which <laughs> yeah. I agree. Yeah. It does seem that way. But in the book, Tolkien, Tolkien's giving us this whole entire thing. So I think it's exactly mm-hmm. what you guys said. It's they have to go back, and that's so so archetypal. They have yes. to go back, and now they're ready to handle things on their own, or, or mm-hmm. they take something back home to their their homeland that makes it better. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a throwback to like episode two of mm-hmm. season one. Mm-hmm. Got to take something back. Um, did we talk about that there? What did we talk we about? Did. Like... We did. That was the big thing, taking it back to the shop. A long shine. time ago. Yeah. Oh. It was a long time yep. ago. <laughs> hey. Oh, yeah. Yep. Comes full circle. That's true. But yeah. it was hope, right? That's what they, yeah. Learned. It just shows that normal mm-hmm. people will rise up and fight if there's, mm-hmm. if there's hope. But yeah, that's hilarious. That's, that's literally almost word for word what you said in ep- our second episode of this podcast so um, <laughs> really yeah. wow yeah go listen well, go listen to I the season one episode two uh, i am nothing if not redundant guys so <laughs> <laughs> well jen what did you think then you you posed the question what do you think yeah no i was gonna say um i am gonna bring a historical element but I was just thinking about soldier, yeah, because that's what I do. But thinking about how soldiers came home from the war and mm-hmm. that Absolutely. there were things that they still had to fight back home. But I remember, oh gosh, I don't even remember where this was from. But oh, actually, in our World War One episode, and I was saying how in um, Downton Abbey they were talking about how if the world doesn't change, then what was the war for? And yeah. I think mm. it's like the same thing in this in this aspect of yeah, I liked it. if. If it doesn't change back home, then what was the war that we fought out there and saw men's lives lost all for? And that's what I believe it is. And it definitely took me by surprise when <laughs> I was reading, but I definitely think it it was necessary, absolutely necessary. And I'm glad that it's in the books. So yeah, just wanted to hear your guys' thoughts too. Absolutely. Okay, guys, so what we're going to do for our last words today is because this book does have a bunch of phenomenal quotes. Just for sake of time, we didn't get to to talk about a whole ton of them. So what we're going to do is we're each going to share a quote and then talk about why it's important to us or what what resonates with us about it. So, Evan, we're going to start with you. What's your what's the quote that that really resonates with you from this book? All right. Uh, So this is uh, Legolas speaking. And it says, up with your beard, Durin's son, for thus it is spoken, oft hope is born when all is forlorn, but what hope he saw from afar, he would not tell. Um, I just love the idea that in the midst and on the, on the, at the tail end of this, like, hard fought battle, that he is, Legolas is, sees something and has never lost hope in what they're fighting for and in what their all their efforts have been for. 
Um, and so even though no one else is aware of like that same hope, it's this thing that burns inside Legolas and he continues to bring that to the, to the group. There is hope there, even though you can't see it, there is hope. Even though we've just fought and we're worn out and we're exhausted, there is hope. Um, and I just think there's something really beautiful about that because it's, it's, you can give up hope at any one point because you're like, this is too hard, but there is something to be seen, even though you can't maybe physically see it, even though you can't feel it in that moment. Um, we should never give up hope because there is something right around the corner that's going to help and motivate us and take us to where we need to be. Amen. So good. We all need a little more hope, don't we? <laughs> good. Thank you, Evan. So mine is from nearest the beginning of the saga. And this is so this is from the Fellowship of the Ring. And this is Gandalf and Frodo talking and they're just talking about the ring and you know Frodo has this task to be you know that it's gonna have to carry out and Frodo says I wish it need not have happened in my time so do I said Gandalf and so do all who live to see such times but that is not for them to decide all that we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us and that quote I mean it, it probably is one of my favorites in the entire book just because I know I've gone back to it in my own life and a lot of us, we we all have things in our life that we don't get to decide, or if we would have had a choice, we we would have rather that trials didn't happen in our time, or that tragedy or hard things wouldn't have happened in our time, but we don't get to make that decision. The only thing that we really get to decide is how we're going to react to it and what we're going to do with the time that's been given to us. And you see someone like Frodo doing what he could with the time that was given to him and triumphing in the end and, you know... um, making it happen and being victorious in the end. So it's just encouraging, I think, for me and my life and for all of us in our lives to know that, yeah, we don't get to choose what's going to happen to us in our life, but we do get to choose how we're going to respond to it and how we're going to act to it. And I think that's just the best way that we can, the best way that we can live our lives. So that's the quote for me. Amen. Benjamin, what about you? Well, there's, like you said, there's tons of great quotes in here, but I wanted to pick one that was, not just important to the book, but also I think important for our podcast. Um, and those of you who have been listening with us, you remember back to when we, we've talked about Chronicles of Narnia, we've talked about Aslan, um, and specifically this concept that runs throughout the Chronicles of Narnia of that character Aslan being dangerous, but also good. I think there's a quote, uh, I think it's in the uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where someone talks about da- Aslan, is he dangerous? Yeah, he's dangerous, but he's also good. And there's yeah. this scene in the middle of two towers where um, Gandalf and Legolas and Gimli and Aragorn are in the, the forest of Fangorn and they're talking uh, about the trees and they're specifically referring to Treebeard here. And Gimli says um, something along the lines. He finds out that Treebeard is Gandalf's friends and he says, he says, I thought he was dangerous. And Gandalf says, dangerous? And so am I. Very dangerous. More dangerous than anything you will ever meet. And he goes on to tell him, and Aragorn is dangerous. Legolas is dangerous. And you, Gimli, you're dangerous. We're all dangerous people, but also we can be wise and kindly as well. And that we can be dangerous, but also good. And then one of the, my favorite quotes out of any literature is at the end of this speech, Gandalf says this. A thing is about to happen which has not happened since the Elder Days. The Ents are going to wake up and find that they are strong. And I think that that gives me goosebumps every time I read it because that that is for every single person. Yeah. So 
at some point we need to wake up and find out that we're strong and that we're powerful and that we can, we have the ability to, to affect change in the world. And we can, we're not just, we don't have to be these weak behind the scenes people who don't stand up for anything. Everybody should try to be dangerous. So, because somebody who's dangerous is somebody who can affect other people and who can change things. But at the same time, we should also strive to be good. And I think that describes God. I think it describes Jesus Christ. Obviously, God is dangerous, right? But he's also good. We, we should try to be like him. Dangerous, but also good. And it flows all throughout Lord of the Rings. These characters who are dangerous, who could chop your head off. They're powerful. They're strong. But those who are good are the ones who come together and who affect change in the world. So let's strive to be dangerous, but also good. Love it. Dangerous, but good. Wonderful. All right, Jen, finish us off. Okay, so there is a long battle in reading this book, right? (laughs) It's a lengthy one, and a lot of bad things happen along the way, but the ring bearer fulfills the quest. And at near the end of the book, Sam and Frodo find themselves being tended to in the king's house. And this is probably one of my favorite scenes in the book. And Sam just wakes up and and Gandalf states, a great shadow has departed. And then this is the quote that I want to read. And then he, Sam, laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. Be he himself burst into tears. Then as a sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring and the sun will shine out the clearer, his tears ceased and his laughter welled up and laughing, he sprang from his bed. How do I feel? He cried. Well, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel he waved his arms in the air. I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I have ever heard. And I just love that quote, like reading that I couldn't help, but I was just smiling so big and like filled with so much joy with Sam. And because as I was reading that, I was just thinking in our lives, after all the battles we've faced, after all the tears we've shed, after everything that we've endured in this earth, like there's going to be a day where the trumpets are going to sound and there's going to be joy and there's going to be like, you won't be able to even describe how you feel just one day all of it being redeemed, you know? And so for me, that's our hope and that's what we're fighting towards. And we're doing it alongside one another and we find our comrades, we find our fellowship of the ring, right? And just keep fighting together and know that it's going to be worth it. And one day we're going to have giddy joy, like a little kid, like reading that Sam is like a little kid, you know, in that moment. And that's the hope that all of us get to have. And so no matter how dark, how difficult it gets, like Evan was alluding to that hope that we have, that hope will not die. Like that is always with us and we can just keep setting our eyes upon that. So that's the beautiful message that we see in the Lord of the Rings and something that we can apply in each of our lives every single day. Amen. What a day will that will be. Well, thank you so much everyone for joining us today on our quest to find true meaning in our favorite stories and There was a lot to unpack today, and I think we found a lot of meaning in what we talked about today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to subscribe to The Lamppost in the Woods and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our intro and outro music is called Missing Peace, and that was composed and performed by Jacob Koppel. Jen, why don't you tell us where people can connect with us on social media? 
So you can follow us at Lamppost in the Woods on Instagram for everything that's upcoming, what we'll be reading. And crazy enough, season three is upon us. So we will be posting that right after the holidays of all the books that we will be reading with the upcoming season. And our episode was a little on the longer end today, as it should have been. So (laughs) I will not this time, but we had a few more of you write some reviews. So next episode, I'll be sure to read uh, a couple of those. But if you haven't yet left us a review, feel free to do so. Maybe you'll get a shout out. (laughs) Awesome. And we hope everyone you will join us next time for our next episode, which will be the last one of season two. Never fear. As Jennifer, Jennifer said, season three is upon us. So, Benjamin, what are we talking about next time? Well, we uh, have really been through the ringer the last few uh, podcast episodes (laughs) with how long our books are with Crime and Punishment and the Historian and Lord of the Rings. So we're going to take a nice uh, break here for our last one and read one of Tolkien's lesser known works called Letters to Father Christmas, um, which I, I think is a very nice heartwarming piece for the holidays. Um, and we're just, we're going to talk about Father Christmas. We're going to talk about Santa Claus. And we're going to try to answer the question, should you believe in Santa Claus? You don't want to miss it. Be there. <laughs> Very well. That Better listen with, with an introduction like that. <laughs> well, everyone, wherever you find yourself on life's journey, we hope and pray that this lamppost in the woods will help guide you to a more hopeful future. We'll see you next time. 